Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sake Revolution. This is America's first sake podcast, and I am your host, John Puma from the Sake Notes, also the administrator at everybody's favorite internet sake discord, the Internet Sake Discord. And my pronouns are he and him. And I am your host, Timothy Sullivan. I'm a sake samurai. I'm a sake educator, as well as the founder of the Urban Sake website. And every week, John and I will be here tasting and chatting about all things sake and doing our best to make it fun and easy to understand. Now, John, mm-hmm. I've got a newsflash for you. Ooh, this is newsflash. big news. I'm ready. What do we got? I'm not sure if you heard, but something really big has happened in the sake industry this month. Something you don't see every day. Do you know what it is? What do you have? There is a brand new and outstanding sake book on the market. That is something you do not see every day. It is called Exploring the World of Japanese Craft Sake, Rice, Water, Earth. And today we will be interviewing the authors and our friends, Nancy Matsumoto and Michael Tremblay. That's why there's two other people in the Zoom this week. Yes. Let me introduce them to you and to our listeners. First of all, Nancy. Nancy Matsumoto is based in Toronto and New York. She's a published author as well as a freelance writer and editor who specializes in the areas of regenerative agriculture, arts and culture, as well as food and sake. She's been a contributor to many publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, People, Food and Wine, and the Los Angeles Times, just to name a few. Nancy has earned three sake certifications and also maintains an outstanding sake blog on her website, nancymatsumoto.com. And introducing Michael Tremblay. He's also based in Toronto, Canada, and Michael is a sake samurai, sake judge, French wine scholar, and holder of the WSET Diploma and Level 3 Award in Wine and Sake. He currently runs the largest sake program in Canada as the Sake Sommelier at Toronto's key modern Japanese restaurant. Last but not least, Michael's also well-known as the creator of the Sake Scholar Course, an educational program that he created to spotlight and teach about the unique qualities of Japan's diverse sake brewing regions. I'd like to welcome both Nancy and Michael to the show. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Great to be here. Great introduction. Nice to be on the show. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank wow. You so quite much. a quite a uh, Canadian invasion this <laughs> <Yes>. year. <laughs> Jumping right to it. So you guys wrote a book together and writing a book by itself is is difficult. Writing a book with somebody sounds like it would be even uh, in some ways even more difficult. And during a pandemic no less. I want to hear from each of you like what motivated you to write the, you know, this particular book and how did you guys connect and decide to start doing this uh, project together? Uh, well, I can take that. We um, first met in late 2016. I actually had been living in New York City and I moved to Toronto for the second time in my life, late 2016. Uh, my husband was working here full time, so I came up. Uh, and it just so happened that the day I got here, John Gautner was having an alumni meetup for his sake professional course. Uh, so as an alumni, I got wind of it, happened to be on the patio of Key, where Michael heads the largest sake program in the country. And I hadn't known Michael before we met there. Michael became a good source for sake stories and we became friends. Uh, and then one night we're at a sake bar, of course, it's a great place in Toronto. If you ever come, it's called Oh My. 
and they've got uh, great hand rolls. And actually, are they still doing it, Michael? I know they have a new venture. Anyway, we discovered that we both really were interested in doing a book. It's kind of like, oh, you're thinking of that too. And um, because we kind of seem to have complementary talents, Michael is a wonderful educator and communicator, and he does these incredible infographics something I could never do. And I like to tell people stories. So we're kind of like, maybe we have complementary skills and let's team up. So that was the easy part. Four years later, we have a book, but that's how it happened. And it did turn out to be a really nice team partnership. That's Thank awesome. You. There's not a lot to add to that, but what Nancy's leaving out is that in the summer of, I think 2018, she went to a fellowship called the Stone Barnes Fellowship. And uh, Nancy, you should be telling the story. Well, no, you so tell it. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, she, you know, at the end of this fellowship, uh, all these amazingly successful women are talking about a project that um, they're trying to get off the ground. And Nancy mentions our book idea, which was a casual thing. And afterwards, she got a lot of interest from a couple of book agents that were taking the fellowship as well. And so I remember getting the email from Nancy and it was like, Michael, people are really interested in our idea. We need to do something. And so it really lit the fire. And if it wasn't for that, I think I'm not sure if things would have been delayed you know, beyond the pandemic and, and getting it going. I, I don't know. It's it, it, I, I, Sometimes I play it in my mind and wonder what what if what what would have happened but yeah anyway um, wow that's great so I, i'm curious to know what your writing process was like did that happen during the pandemic how did it go and how did the two of you end up working together to get this book written edited and eventually published how did that all play out that's a great question and i mean i think that starts even before the writing and, and it was the research trips um we hmm. We had a, a really strong proposal and uh, we wanted to hit the ground running in the research component and, and getting as much of that underway. And I'm really thankful that we did since we we got it all done right before everything shut down with early 2020. And so we identified a lot of breweries that we wanted to visit. We did a lot of research in advance of going. So we had some questions in mind what we wanted to tell. But even then, we didn't know exactly what story we were going to tell from each one. Uh, and then when we started writing in, I guess, March 2020 is when we officially got our publishing. We signed on the line uh, We've and it was kind of a bittersweet time because it was I had just shut down key and we had just laid off 100, mm. 200 people. Uh, it oh was really gosh. sad time. And it was like, congratulations, you're you're you know, we we were able to finally sign this deal that had been three months in the making. So, uh, and at one point we weren't sure when this was going to happen. So we were very excited, but it also meant with everything shut down and uh, things slowing down, we had the time to write and, and to talk through things uh, and, and properly sketch. And as Nancy alluded to, she's the storyteller. So you can't have two writers on this book. And I, I have to commend Nancy in many ways because she's writes so fast like her computer must be on fire when she's writing because we were flying through chapters and i have was having a lot of trouble keeping up just reading through editing flagging things that we needed to kind of research and whatnot uh, and meanwhile working on infographics and, and and these visuals also all the images we had 
I think something like two or 3000 images to sift through to figure out which ones are going to be the images we wanted, to, you know, to, mm -hmm. to tell our story in the book. So there was just a lot of work and it was kind of a divide and conquer approach in many ways uh, in, in getting it all done. Did the bulk of that happen during the pandemic? You're emailing back and forth, learning Zoom with the rest of us. Is that how it happened? <laughs> exactly. That, that's exactly how it happened. Uh, we, we set up a, a Google uh, Drive um, so that mm -hmm. we could share documents very yep. easily. Um, and pretty much every day for a while, it was just fast and furious. And of course, we both had projects on the horizon. So we were trying to get you know, things done as much as possible. And at the, one point we were like, shoot, we wanted to do this, this book in advance. We wanted it published for the Tokyo Olympics. And, and the Tokyo Olympics got delayed to the next summer, which was horrible for Japan. But we were like, great, we have a chance at getting our <laughs> book out for the Tokyo Olympics. And then again, it was my first book. And I think I was a little naive in that thinking, oh yeah, this will be out by then, not thinking of how far in advance, you know, you're doing things. So that was really cool. But yeah, uh, the bulk of it was in that first year, the second half of 2019 uh, and 2020. I was just going to say we were actually aided in a way by the pandemic because we did three research trips, two in 19 and one in 20, I think. Anyway, the third research trip, the day we left Japan, really it pretty much shut down because that big cruise ship had oh just gosh. landed the night before and, and everyone oh was gosh. quarantined. Mm. Uh, and then no one could really come in and out. Everything in the world started shutting down. Uh, so really that was the time to write the book where there was just, you couldn't, you could barely leave your apartment. So really it was kind of enforced writing time. There wasn't a lot else to do. So in that sense, I think we were kind of helped by the pandemic. Well, and, and mm -hmm. to add to that, it was actually therapeutic. The pandemic was horrible. It doesn't matter how, if you had the best case scenario for the, the conditions you were living in and, you know, if you're jobless or whatnot, to be able to go back to those travels and, and work on chapters, talking about people that we really fell in love with, you know, on our adventures, really always, every time we, you know, I opened whatever chapter, I was transported right back into, you know, happier times. So it was, um, it, it was a really great, great thing for that. Yeah. And I think we were all really naive at the beginning of the pandemic, thinking it would be over in a month or two and we could all exactly. get back to our lives, but here we are. Well, I, I think I remember Nancy and I, okay, well, you know, we've got like four weeks or six weeks before things open. We need to maximize this time. And <laughs> And it just kept going and going and going. Yep. Um, but it was good. It, it lit the fire right at the beginning. We were both like, let's not, you know, let this go to waste. Let's take advantage of, in a way, it, it was a gift. Uh, you know, I hate to say that because the, there's so many awful things about the pandemic. But it was it was really a gift for us to get things moving um, with our with this book. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, with, with seeing a small light in an otherwise dark area. <laughs> uh, really quickly on the structure of the book I think the book does a really great job of balancing information for people who are brand new to sake and also lots of fun tidbits for people who have been around this for a long time it does a great job of kind of going back and forth and uh, and keeping everybody I think engaged uh, what was your idea for the structure of the book how do you how do you arrive at this well we wanted to really 
make a book that was accessible to anyone from the absolute newcomer to sake to a real diehard connoisseur who knows a ton. Yeah, like you guys. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of the challenge at the outset. And so we knew we wanted to have a sake basic section and it was a perfect vehicle for uh, Michael's infographics to have that sake primer, that 30 pages in the front of the book, where if you don't know what sake is and you don't know what it's made with and you don't know how it's made, you just kind of flip through that section and you can really go in deep, as deep into it as you want. You don't need to go into Kimoto or Bodaimoto or all of the crazy graphs that Michael does on tasting and pairings. Um, but, you know, it's kind of up to you what you want to take out of it. Uh, and then we go into sort of the narrative part, which is divided into two sections. The first is rice, water, earth, where we talk about the elemental components of sake. So we have two chapters on rice, Yamada Nishiki, of course, because every beginner knows that learns that that's the king of sake rice. And then we wanted to do one on omachi because it's our favorite heirloom. And we had been hearing, yeah, about the omachi festival, which I was really kind of obsessed with going to. And it ended up being kind of like a, a great part of that chapter where you just get all these serious, serious omachi fans who are all gathering and tasting and judging. And then we have a section on the different waters, the, the iconic water regions, uh, and then on mountains and terroir, the, you know, the sort of the contentious topic of terroir and what it is. Um, there's a whole chapter on snow country where Timothy features in. I know he's got the exact page memorized. <laughs> yes. Um, Wait a minute. Wait one moment. Timothy, if, do you have the page memorized? Yes. And if it's all right with you, if it's all right with you, I'd like to read a quote from page 113. Oh, please do. This is probably the most the most impressive quote in the whole book. This is in regards to Yukimuro snow storage cellars in Niigata, and it says Sullivan, who grew up in the snowbelt city of Syracuse, New York, says Yukimuro and snow country customs in general, quote, use snow as a natural resource rather than treating it as an obstacle and nuisance as it is in upstate New York. <laughs> I love that quote because it's very true. Yeah. <laughs> I told Nancy that uh, we refer to Syracuse as Siberacuse because it's so cold and snowy. Right. But I did not grow to appreciate snow until I lived in Niigata. Well, Nancy, um, <laughs> thank you so much for the beautiful quote. And My so pleasure. back to the structure of the book. Um, <laughs> um, so this first part, again, is all about the rice, water, and earth. Yeah, and then part two, we call the alchemists, uh, because we're talking about yeast, we're talking about mold, mm. fungus, kojikin, but we're also talking about people like the master brewers. We have a chapter on the Toji Guild system. We have a chapter on women master brewers. We have a really fun chapter where we talk about our favorite sake bar crawls, where we're meeting all kinds of interesting and uh, eccentric people. And then there's a chapter on on recipes too, which I really like putting, you know, gathering the recipes and, and talking to the families about what they eat and how they pair it with sake. So yeah, so that's the structure of the book. Excellent. Well, I know I know you did so much research and so much travel for your book. You guys were all over the place. And when you're reading through the book, 
it's really amazing to just get the scope of all the places you actually visited. And I learned so much reading through the book, and I'm wondering for each of you, is there something that you learned about sake with this type of in-depth travel and research that really surprised you? Yeah, for me, what was really cool about our trip and the process of writing the book was connecting the dots on some things that, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm French Canadian. I, you know, I've, I've been learning as much as I can about the history of Japan and, and, and sake, but there are always a few things that, you know, just didn't line up perfectly on that timeline. And I just couldn't figure out one. And one of those was in Hiroshima. You know, I always heard that in Saijo is the birth of sake. There's a lot of advancements that they did there for, for many reasons. But when we visited Imada Shuzo in Akitsu, um, which is on the other side of the mountains uh, from Saijo, um, uh, Senzaburo Miura's house was right behind it. And this gentleman was this kind of early godfather of Ginjo techniques, you know, particularly with what to do with Koji and all that, because he had learned to go make sake in Hyogo. And the water there is hard. And so, you know, the, the techniques that brewers were using there were designed to go with this harder water. Um, but when you're in, a, in an area in Hiroshima that has relatively softer water, the techniques didn't work and he was making bad sake. And he was, I'm sure he was beyond frustrated at the time. And so hearing about this and whatnot, I was like, well, why is it Saijo that is the birthplace, not you know, Akitsu, um, because to me, this guy is, you know, you know, the, the, the guy that really started it all. Um, but, you know, there's a combination of things uh, at play. There was the, this, uh, uh, his techniques, the called soft water brewing laws, but also mm -hmm. there's another gentleman in Hiroshima, Ryuchi Satake, who uh, developed the vertical rice polishing machine in the early 1930s. But the brewers inside Joe, um, were some of the first to really gravitate to these polishing machines. And I think that was really cool. That plus the piece of what Mura brought to it. And the great thing about what Senza Bureau Mura did is he wanted to share it with all the brewers in Hiroshima. It wasn't for sale. And that was written on the back of this manual. Uh, and he really wanted it to get out there. And I think that's really beautiful. I love that mm. selflessness that, mm -hmm. that he had. Um, and so that was a bit of a mystery solved for me uh, and an aha mm. moment when we were at the Maigaki household in, in mm. Saijo and asking, why is it here at this birthplace? And I was trying mm. to connect these pieces and for some reason I just couldn't make them fit. And it finally clicked in place while we were having sake. Probably the sake helped with that. Um, <laughs> but I was just like, yes, sake and oysters. We were, you know, we were drinking Kamo Izumi and oyster mm. shells and that was awesome. And, but yeah, so that to me, that was one. I mean, there was many moments where, you know, there were re revelations, but yeah, I'll, I'll pass it off to Nancy here. Yeah, I wanted to talk about not something so much that surprised me, but I think one of the parts that I really loved about our research, and partially it's because I really am interested in agriculture and I write about regenerative agriculture, uh, was really meeting the farmers who you realize as you're talking to them and you're looking at the rice fields that the people who make the raw material of sake are so important. And they really are revered by the makers who understand, but I don't think the average person who's sipping a beautiful glass of sake is necessarily thinking about the guy who grew the rice. 
Uh, So we were really lucky. We were able to meet some farmers up close. One really memorable farmer was in Okayama Prefecture. Uh, We were visiting Muromachi Shuzo, which is the oldest brewery in Okayama. And um, they really loved their, he's about 85 at the time we visited. His name is Hajime Sakon. And he actually has a sake named after him that's for export only. That sort of shows you how much they care about him and how they, they love him. But we're out there and we're trying to figure out what makes this so special. Is it the soil? And we're thinking, yeah, it's that incredible clay soil. And at one point, one of the farmers sort of picked up, we have these great picture of this gray green sludge. And we're like, okay, it's the minerals, right? And he said, no, not really. It's just that the sort of the density of this carries the organic fertilizer really well. And then a day later, we go visit Toshimori-san at Toshimori Shuzo, who makes another gorgeous omachi sake, Hitotsuji. And he's like, no, 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 my soil is sandy, it's granite, and you know, the water drainage is really good. And that's, you know, one of the secrets. And so you kind of realize that there are so many different factors that are making a sake great, and that a farmer has to kind of manipulate to get the result he wants. So it was, I don't know, it was just little details like that that I I thought were really cool. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome wow that's always a, really that's cool. a fun that's a fun story i like that a lot <laughs> so many mysteries <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, sakon-san and- will, will always remember because uh okayama is uh you know how a lot of the different prefectures are famous for a certain fruit or vegetable or culinary delight and uh in okayama peaches are, are um, something that people from other prefectures will drive to to pick up and buy these peaches they're fabulous and so Sakon-san grew, had, had a small orchard of them behind his his house. And uh, he asked if we wanted some peaches. And we went back uh, to his place and he painstakingly chose the best peaches that he had in, in his shed. And uh, it was really heartwarming to see how generous he was with them. They're, they're giant, first off. They're like a softball um, sized peach. And he gave us, I think, what was it, Nancy, like nine or 12 of them. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was like, what are we going to do? We're getting on a train and we've got a whole crate of pe- these beautiful peaches and you don't want them to go to waste. And I remember, um, I think we were, we went into Hiroshima and we had dinner and we, um, we shared some of the peaches with the chef and we, we, we had some for dessert and they had, they were able to enjoy them because uh, Nancy had some relatives in Kyushu we were visiting and she was able to, you know, enjoy some of these peaches with them. So in a way it was great because they didn't, they didn't go to waste, which is, you know, for, for us, it was like, well, we can't eat all these. It's just impossible. And we, you know, so we, it was great to have them to, to share with others on our travel. So. Nice. Yeah, Peach is looking for a good home. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is that time of our show where we um, stop talking about sake for a moment and start sipping it while we talk about it a little bit more. For this episode, Nancy has selected a very wonderful, wonderful sake. This is the uh, Kazunomori Alpha 3, uh, Junmai Daiginjo Muroka Nama Genshu, in case you needed any more descriptors. Uh, I don't think you have any more. <laughs> Kazunomori is from a brewery over in Nara Prefecture, Yuchoshuzo. The 
Semibuai on this rice, which is a Akitsuho rice, is 50%. And sake meter value, that measure of dry to sweet, is plus three. And the acidity, a very reasonable one. Oh, and of course, the ABV, 17%. Genshu, remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, really quickly, uh, Nancy, what influenced you to select this one? Well, um, part of what w- it was what was available when I was in New York that we could get and you can get. <laughs> also, we were tasting this at our at our little Brooklyn Kura event, so I knew I can get it at Kuraichi. But we also visited Yucho Shizu, and we really love Yoshimoto-san. He's an, an amazing guy. He's someone who knows history, but also is incredibly on the cutting edge of technology. Um, so he really wants to kind of elevate this humble table rice, Akitsuho, and treat it the way you would treat Yamada Nishiki. So his alpha two mm. is polished to 22%. And it's really like, I want to treat this humble table rice like the best Chokue Yamada Nishiki, just to show people how amazing it can be. And he's a great brewer, too. And this is kind of his overseas sake. So it's unlike the others, it's lightly pasteurized. So it can travel, um, but you still get that really lively Nama quality to it. And it's got an effervescence mm-hmm. that's really pretty. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, let's get our bottles open and into the glass. Yes, uh, Kazunomori is a brand that when I am traveling in Japan, I am often told, oh, you're going to like this. And then they pour it for me. And I'm, they're usually very right. Yeah, it's great. What's really cool about the brewery too is they're rooted in history, such a fascinating history. You know, going back to Bodai Moto, but you know their Kazinomori line and and Alpha are so modern in their approach, but they come from a place of history, and that's that's really, I think, remarkable about this. Lovely, but uh, f- fresh above all. Yeah, I would say so. It's a refreshing sake. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's give it a taste. Hmm. You were not kidding about that slight effervescence. It's yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. For Yoshi-san, he is uh, obsessed with freshness. Um, he, <laughs> he even devised a bottling spout that goes right down to the bottom of the bottle and then slowly moves up and fills it so that it minimizes any oxidative qualities that would, would, would appear in the sake. But also that freshness is where, you know, when you cap that bottle, you're keeping in that that super freshness, there's some CO2 in there that's just dis- that dissolves into it. Is it a bit of that, that tickle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that as people are receiving this as an import, that his dedication to freshness is something that I really appreciate because you really do get that on the, on the product that arrives in the U.S. And that's a, that's a tricky thing to do sometimes, I think. Yeah, and he calls it, uh, it's, uh, the title of it is Bridge to the World meaning that it's sort of his um, reaching out to the wider world, to the international community to introduce this whole Kazunomori line because his father started the Kazunomori Nama and the Alpha series is kind of his building on what his father built. But now he's Mm. up to like number eight or something like that. So he just keeps iterating in new and creative ways. And it's, it's really exciting to watch. Yeah, and this is the Alpha Type 3. I was wondering what that number was all about. So he's building mm-hmm. and tinkering. Tinkering and every time. to grow. I think the first yeah. one was like 60, 
same I've wired then 22, then this is 50. And then he does that, um, the sort of the siphoning thing that Michael was talking about where mm. um, he makes it really cold so that the yeast falls asleep and goes to the bottom of the tank. So there's absolutely no pressing or filtering. It's mainly just, it's really just siphoning from the top of the tank and then replacing that empty space with nitrogen. Great. Well, we've got it in the glass here. And uh, Tim, you want to take us through? Yeah. Just holding it up to the light, I see like almost a micro particulate floating in there and a little bit of perhaps effervescence, a little bit of bubbling. And um, this does not look heavily charcoal filtered like a Nigata sake. <laughs> this is a yeah. reading more natural in the glass mm -hmm. to me. Do you see that as well, Nancy? Yeah, absolutely. It's got yeah. a, a little bit of color to it. Yeah. Well, let's give it a smell. Mmm. Mm. <laughs> smells so fresh. Mm -hmm. Just lovely. It's beautiful. Actually, I opened it earlier before dinner, and um, now I'm t getting a little bit more of that herbal quality for some reason than the mm. first time where it was fruitier. Mm. I'm getting a lot of fruit uh, mm -hmm. personally on my end, like a banana, mm -hmm. I want to mm. say. Yeah, there is fruitiness, but I agree with Nancy that there's also like an herbaceous note, like almost fresh cut grass mm -hmm. or something like yeah. that. It's really, really um, springy. And, and mm. so that freshness, again, he's obsessed with that freshness. Wow. And a lot of these details you're mentioning as we're tasting are outlined in your book. So... It's it's the yeah. <laughs> the vividness that you're bringing to our talk now. Everyone can read these stories in the book, and this is just a little teaser as to the type of experiences you had. Really, really exciting. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, Nancy and Michael, we are just about out of time for this week's episode, but intrepid listeners, we will be continuing our discussion with them next week, going through the book, exploring the world of Japanese craft sake. And next week, we'll also have another delicious sake to taste together. Well, we hope you'll all join us next week. And if you haven't yet, be sure to pick up your copy of Exploring the World of Japanese Craft Sake, Rice, Water, Earth. And before we sign off for today, I want to give a special shout out and a special thank you to all of our patrons whose generous donations make our show possible. So until next time, please remember to keep drinking sake and come on.